Turn your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And we are beginning a new section, um, and it's all about faith and works. Faith and works. And I titled the sermon this morning, Faith That Does Not Save. But uh, I'd like to read to you this new section so you get an idea of what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. Uh, Beginning in verse 14, chapter 2 of James. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself or being alone. But someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result, the works, as a result of the works, faith was perfected or completed. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see, that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, Was not Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works when she received a messenger and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, and so also faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Father, as we embark on this new series to talk about faith and works, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to grasp what James is talking about here. Father, it is very important that we understand these principles, and Lord, it has been misunderstood by some. And so, Father, we ask your blessing upon this series that you would receive much glory and that we would enjoy and receive much joy as we work through it together. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. So, we're entering into this new mini-series, and it's really an important portion of Scripture. A lot of people get works mixed up with faith. Um, In fact, all other religions except biblical Christianity is a works righteousness religion. All other works put, or all other religions put works first, to gain some type of favor with God. And biblical Christianity puts faith first with works following. That's the difference between life and death, eternal life 
and eternal separation from God. To set the stage, I need to tell you at the outset that the main theme of this section is really not salvation, but rather it's all about sanctification, how you live your life as a believer. You see, sanctification is the work of God in the life of a true believer, and it's not like justification, which is monergistic. Justification is monergistic in the sense that the doctrine that God works independent of human will in regeneration. Mono, one. God is doing it, okay, in the sense of regeneration. Sanctification, on the other hand, is synergistic, and that is the doctrine that the believer works together with the Holy Spirit in their individual progress toward maturity, The believer works, even as God transforms the believer, more and more into the image of his dear son. We saw this in Philippians 2.13 when we were studying the book of Philippians. It says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But we do realize that the next verse says that it is God working in you both to do Uh, his work, and for his glory. And so it's a process. Sanctification is a process. Uh, Two important texts, you might want to write these down, that talk about this process. 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says this, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Transformation. That means that there's processors going from one glory to another. In the same image from glory to glory, the text says, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So you see, when we first repented and turned to God in faith, he began a work within us that will bring us all the way to heaven. That's my whole school bus analogy. If you get on the school bus, you're going to end up in school. If you truly are regenerate, you will go to heaven. And there's a process from the time that you first believed till the time that you're either raptured or you die and go to be with God, and you are being transformed more and more into the image of his dear son. Philippians 1.6 says, He began a good work in you, and he will perfect it even to the day of Christ. That's called the assurance of the believer. Romans 8.29 and 30 is the second verse that I want you to think about in context here with this progressive aspect of sanctification. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. There that is, again, we're ever being transformed more and more into the image of his Son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. Now get this, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. So the beginning to the end. This is a good thing. We live in a closed system as regenerate people. We will see the Lord. Now there's a process in sanctification. And the book of James addressed to believers is teaching them how to apply their salvation to their everyday practical lives, showing what it should look like and helping them to gauge whether they are truly have truly trusted in the gospel or whether their faith is forfeited, whether their faith is fake. Justification, 
is distinct from sanctification because in justification, God does not make the sinner righteous. Did you hear me? In justification, God does not make the sinner righteous. He declares that the sinner is righteous. Romans 3.28 and Galatians 2.16. You can check it out on your own. Justification imputes Christ's righteousness to the sinner's account. Sanctification, on the other hand, imparts righteousness to the sinner personally and practically. It's our practical, lived-out experience as believers. Romans 6, 1 through 7. Justification changes the sinner's standing before God. Sanctification is internal, and it changes the believer's state as he's living on earth here. Justification is an event, one-time thing, and it happens, and it's done. Sanctification is a process, and the two must be distinguished but can never be separated. If you're justified, you will experience sanctification. God does not just justify whom he does not sanctify, and he does not sanctify whom he does not justify. Both are essential elements of salvation. Now, in case you're wondering where I am in the text, I'm in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? James is all about the works, so much so that Luther called it a right strawy epistle and dedicated it to the appendix in his Bible. He did think it was the word of God, but he was a little shaky on it because he was what? really into justification by faith alone. That was his rallying cry and the Reformation's rallying cry. And James talking all about this work stuff, it's like, whoa, I don't want to go there. This is dangerous stuff. It's dangerous because it's good and it's true. Both are essential elements of salvation. They're like two sides to one coin, justification, sanctification, okay? J.C. Ryle wrote an amazing book, and if you've never read it, you need to go from here and buy it. Or those of you looking at Facebook right now, you need to go to Amazon Prime and just order it, okay? It's called Holiness, real simple. Just type in Holiness, and you'll go right to J.C. Ryle. Buy it. He said this, Sanctification, then, is the invariable result of that vital union with Christ, which true faith is gives to a Christian. He that abides in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, John 15, 5. The branch which bears no fruit is no living branch of the vine. I would have argued with Martin Luther at the time that he was thinking James' text was a right straw epistle. I'd say, well, what about John 15? Because isn't that what it says? Um, He that abides in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth works, much fruit. But that branch which bears no works, no fruit, is no living branch of the vine. The union with Christ, which produces no effect on the heart and life, is a mere formal union, which is worthless before God. And the faith which has not a sanctifying influence in the character is not, excuse me, 
It's not real. It's a faith of devils. We'll get to that next week. <laughs> you see, I'm passionate about this because I'm, I'm convinced that the church is filled with spurious faith, with people that have raised their hand or possibly walked down an aisle, have given mental assent to the truths of the Bible, but it's not sunk into their heart, and therefore they have no fruit, and they have no transformation taking place, and they're the same sinning person that they were before they were converted, quote-unquote, air quotes, right? It's so important. He goes on to say, the faith which has not a sanctifying influence on the character is no better than the faith of devils. It is a dead faith because it's alone. In short, where there is no sanctification of life, there is no real faith in Christ. True faith works by love. It constrains a man to live for the Lord from a deep sense of gratitude for redemption. It makes him feel that he can never do too much for him that died for him. And being much forgiven, he loves much. That is the mark of a truly converted soul, one who is regenerate and and born afresh, born anew, born again, if you will. I am not the same person that I was before I was converted. I can tell you I'm not him, thank God. And you should not be that same person either. Now, your growth may not be straight up like this. It may be more like this. (laughs) And most of us, are like that. We struggle with sin habits that we collected during those days before we were believers. And I get that. We're not talking sinless perfection here. But we are talking, you should sin less this year than you did last year. You should be growing more year by year. You should become more personally holy. You should see growth. And those around you should see it as well. And that's all James was talking about. Because I think there were people in the church that James was shepherding that had spurious faith and they didn't have the works and he was warning them. And there's a very clear distinction between Orthodox or biblical Christianity and all other religions as I mentioned. The difference was highlighted in the Reformation and it can be easily identified in this way. The, The Reformation view of faith is faith equals Justification and works. Faith equals justification and works. All other religions, Christian, okay, some Christian who are not Orthodox, and any other religion on earth says faith plus works. Follow their creed plus works equals justification. Quite a difference. And it's a difference between eternal life or eternal damnation. Martin Luther rediscovered the biblical truth of justification by faith alone. Because Christians are justified by faith alone, their standing before God is, is not in any way related to personal merit. You see, if you're truly justified by faith alone, you have nothing to brag about, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Because It's really an alien justification. It's an alien faith that we have been given that's outside of ourselves and granted to us. Why? We will ask that question for the rest of our lives. 
Who am I, Lord, that you've had mercy on me? God works and practical holiness, or good works and practical holiness do not provide the grounds for acceptance with God. God receives as righteousness those who believe, not because of any good thing that he sees in them. It is solely on the basis of Christ's righteousness, an alien righteousness that is given to us, which is counted to their account when they believe. To one who does not work, I quoted this um, when Mike spoke last, last week, to one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. That's what justification is. Now the objective in James 2, 14 through 26 is to answer the question, what is genuine saving faith? What is it? What does it look like? And this question makes this section of the scripture one of the most vitally important sections of the Bible because the truth that James explains deals directly with a person's eternal destiny. The most frightening deception in this life is to think, I possess saving faith, when in fact God's eyes do not see genuine saving faith. We need to understand what genuine saving faith is. So this portion of scripture is is not so much about salvation, even though there's always crossover into salvation, but James is writing to help his audience determine if they have genuine faith, saving faith, if you will. And if their faith is counterfeit, merely an intellectual agreement that did not go to the heart, there will be no deeds, there will be no works coming forth from that faith, and therefore it is dead faith, being alone. It's marvelous truth. More than any other book in the New Testament, James places a spotlight on the necessity for believers to act in accordance with their faith. And it's not what a person needs to do to get saved, but rather what a genuinely saved person will do. Faith equals justification plus works. It's like the invisible man. I'm dating myself severely here. I don't know if you ever saw the invisible man. Uh, There was a TV show back in, right shortly after the crust of the earth formed. And this invisible man, the only time you would see him is when somebody would throw a blanket over him. Works are like the blanket of justification, okay? You can't see justification. You can't see that a believer is a believer. But by their works, you can identify them. Those guys over in Berlin that are loading up this rickety old van and driving food over to people in the Ukraine, what skin do they have in that game to risk their lives to do that? That, that is works. That's, that's the cloth over the invisible man that is justification. And they're showing us by their works that they are true believers. Okay? That's exactly what James is getting in. In James, we see how does our faith impact our response to trials? We've talked about that. Uh, Do we hear only and not do? Is our faith functional? Does, Does our faith run to the widow and orphan or away from them because they disturb our personal peace and affluence? 
How does our faith impact our response to the poor or toward the rich? Is our faith partial towards the rich? Does our faith take into consideration that we will be judged by the law of liberty? The last sermon I preached. How well do your actions mirror the faith that you proclaim? And this is a question that we all struggle to answer well. We'd like to point to all the ways that our faith and works kind of overlap, but too often there's gaps in that picture. And as you read the letter from James, focus on those areas that he mentions, your actions during trials. How do you receive trials? Like you are to receive them with all joy, according to James 1. That tells us where we're at. As you read the letter, think of the treatment of those that are less fortunate, those that can't pay you back. How do we treat those people? The way you speak and relate to others, does it reflect your faith and your profession of being one of God's blood-bought children? And the role that money plays in how you live your life. Allow James to encourage you to do good according to the faith that you proclaim. We'll get to that money part in the latter parts of James. Having learned several languages other than English with much tear and sweating great drops of blood, I've always rejoiced that English is my mother tongue. Always. There are so many inconsistencies in the English language. There is no butter in buttermilk. No egg in eggplant. There's no ham in hamburger. No apple in pineapple. Quicksand works very slowly. And boxing rings are square. I'm so glad I was born Speaking English, right? Into the English-speaking language. Now, inconsistencies of language are not significant. They're kind of funny, actually. But inconsistencies in our faith are significant, very significant. And so those who profess to be Christians and Christ followers must follow Christ. Their words and their deeds must be consistent in what they profess It needs to work together. We cannot only hear and not do. I can't think of a more vital portion of Scripture for us to consider today because we live in a very protected and comfortable environment, untested by the kind of situations that are facing believers everywhere today. America's maybe kind of the last ones to face those kind of things. But the believers that James was writing to were facing trials They were part of the diaspora, part of the diaspora. They were probably part of the diaspora that got spread out because of Herod and the persecution that he brought about Christians uh, back in Acts 12. You can look it up. Uh, Peter also wrote to the diaspora, but they were probably the ones from the uh, persecution from Nero when he burnt Rome and then blamed it on the Christians. Both Peter and James wrote to Jews who were in the diaspora, who were part of those that had gotten run out. Now, we're living in a relatively uh, easy place presently, and we see increasing risks of and the rise of people being scattered abroad in other countries. Millions of Ukrainians are flooding into Europe. Millions of 
Afghanistanis are. Millions of Syrians are. They're all over. Do you remember Christian Andresen preached to us about entertaining and hosting those that need hosting? And do you realize that some in our church took issue with that? He was talking about entertaining the Syrian refugees and so forth, and somebody questioned him on that, and I had to kind of run, run uh, blocking for him and, and help the person understand, you have no idea what you're talking about questioning this man. He's right in the thick of it, and he's showing by his works that he's a born-again believer. He's amazing. So it's a message that we can take to heart, and we can learn and apply it directly to our own lives today. Because without genuine faith, James talks about in this portion of Scripture, it's going to be impossible to remain standing strong in the face of the coming persecution. I have tried to prepare us for coming persecution since the first days of planting this church because they are coming, people. I don't know if I'll live to see them. Maybe God will be gracious to us and it'll be put off for a long time, but it sure seems close. We're starting to see that almost already in our own wonderful country. You see, it's important. James wanted his audience to possess genuine saving faith as I do you and to flee the kind of faith that has no works. And looking at just the first four verses of this new section of Scripture, I want to address, number one, the importance of integrity in our testimony. We need to have lives that match our, our words. And number two, I, I want to talk about the ease with which we watch others in need and use spiritual talk, but do nothing of practical assistance to help. James warns us against that. Now, this church is phenomenal. When you see a need, you run to it. I'm thinking of when we built this building, we were like 150 people, and we bought this building. And then we built it out, talking million dollars plus, with 150 people. That was a great act of faith, and that was a great work of faith that you all participated in. Just recently, I told you of a need over in Taliabo. You've never even met the Taliabo. And you collected, we collected $10,000 from you. Wow. So, so, you know, there might be one or two of you that don't understand these principles, but we are functioning this way. We, we must excel more and more. I mean, how, how much can we give to the one that died for us, right? What's too much? I'm not talking finances here. I'm talking our lives. That's what we need to think about. And, and, and that's what James wanted people to understand. So thirdly, and finally, I, I want to identify with James on how such faith is no faith at all. And so with that, we can get to the sermon. <laughs> I hope you brought lunch. Talk is cheap. Okay, verse 14. Talk is cheap. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? but he has no works. Can that faith save him? Talk that doesn't measure up. Jesus had a lot to say about that to the religious leaders of his day. He said, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away. What that tells me is that they knew the lingo, but they weren't truly 
believers in Christ. And he was talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was showing that people can say one thing when the reality is really quite different. And therefore, Jesus goes on to say, but in vain do they worship me. These people were religious people. These leaders were religious leaders. And that's why I say I believe that our churches in America are filled with people that are religious people. Otherwise, don't you think we'd have a much greater impact on the culture? Of course we would. And therefore, we need to be ones who have words that match our profession. Richard Baxter, who was a Puritan, he warned pastors with these words. These are such sober words. I have these in every one of my Bibles, either in a paper put in or written in a leaf. I want you to listen to this scathing uh, warning to pastors and teachers. Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine. Unless you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as may be the occasion of their ruin. Unless you unsay with your lives what you say with your lips. He goes on to say, Take heed to yourselves, lest you live in those sins which you preach against in others, and lest you be guilty of that which daily you condemn. Will you make it your work to magnify God, and when you have done, dishonor him as much as others? Will you proclaim Christ's governing power and yet scorn it and rebel yourselves? Will you preach his laws and willfully break them? If sin be evil, why do you live in it as if it be not? Why do you dissuade men from it? If it be dangerous, how dare you venture on it? And if it be not, why do you tell men so? If God's threatenings be true, why do you not fear them? If they be false, why do you needlessly trouble men and them and put them into such frights without cause? Do you know the judgment of God that they who commit such things are worthy of death, and yet will you do them? You that teacheth another, do you not teach yourself? You that say to a man, should not, a man should not commit adultery or be drunk or covetous, are such your sins? What? Will the same tongue speak evil that speaks against evil? Will those lips censure and slander and backbite your neighbor that cry down these and the like things in others? Take heed to yourselves, lest you cry down sin and yet do not overcome it. Lest while you seek to bring it down in others, you bow to it yourself and become its slaves yourselves. Wow. For of whom a man is overcome, the same he is brought into bondage. To whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. O brethren, it is easier to chide at sin than to overcome it. Now, that is written to pastors in the Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter, but it suits the Christian just as well. Do our lives match our testimonies and the things that we profess? Such a sobering warning to pastors is equally chilling to believers, isn't it? What we say must be backed up 
by what we do, and that is genuine saving faith. He says, what use is it, brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? So that talk is cheap. There's also an element in verse 14 of believing a lie about the nature of grace. Why might someone say they are a believer, but not produce the fruit of a regenerate heart, or the works with James is talking about? How could something like that take place? What's behind Jesus' warning to some in his day when he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Again, he says, many will say, testimony, right, profession of faith, verbalize to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Why were they practicing lawlessness lawlessness, when they were doing such religious things like casting out demons and stuff and working in nurseries and, and teaching Bible studies and stuff? Right? Let's just bring it home, okay? Let's not... Just keep it in the scriptural realm and remain untouched. Let's bring it home to our hearts because we need the transformation that God can bring to us. Without faith, it's impossible to please God no matter what you do. So these people were people that were doing all these things for God, very spiritual things, without faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Faith equals justification plus works. There's a preponderance of so-called brethren who claim the name Christian, but by their lives they deny the power of the Christian life because they've given in to cheap grace. Cheap grace is everywhere. Now, a Lutheran pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing during the time of World War II and Nazism, and a staunch... um, supporter against Hitler, wrote this, cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth, the love of God taught as a Christian conception of God, and an intellectual assent to that idea is held to be of itself sufficient to secure the remission of sins. Now, he was in the state church, and so he writes, the church which holds correct doctrine of grace has, it is supposed, ipso facto, a part in that grace. In such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition or repentance is required. Still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace, therefore, amounts to a denial of, of the incarnation of the word of God. He's saying cheap grace amounts to a denial of the power of the regenerated heart that goes from glory to glory and is is transformed. There's a difference between Steve in 1974 and Steve in 1975 and on and on and on. 
Cheap grace has not lost its worldly appeal since Bonhoeffer wrote those words. If anything, the tendency to cheapen grace has eaten away into the heart of evangelical Christianity. I know of groups of people that say they're part of the free grace movement that will drop F-bombs while they're praying because they can, because they're forgiven. How ludicrous is that? Let no vain word proceed out of your mouth because you're going to be judged for every word that comes out. I think we have a very low view of God if we think like that. Now, we're doing everything here to help you not to think like that. Um, And don't mean to scare you out of your wits, but God is a holy God. (laughs) And he expects holiness from the people that he's redeemed. Many professing Christians today utterly ignore the biblical truth that grace instructs us what? to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and therefore live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age, Titus 2.12. Too many think that the gospel is kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card, a ticket with no strings attached, open-ended package of amnesty, indulgence, forbearance, charity, leniency, immunity, approval, tolerance, and self-awarded privilege divorced from any Moral demands. That is not the gospel of the New Testament. You see, the intentional pursuit of personal holiness is laid aside with that kind of thinking. There's no watching your life or striving after holiness with which no one will see God. And sadly, and I know this by personal experience, groups like that actually think intentional pursuit of personal holiness is an act of the flesh and to be avoided. Wow. Now let me go to verses 15 and 16 because we see needs are met by genuine faith. Verses 15 and 16 say very clearly to us, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? What use is that? You know, that'd be like with this Ukrainian situation, tell them, God bless, have a nice day. (laughs) Really? When... They're sleeping in the aisles of a train. And I I know of um, one sister that came to our church from the Ukraine. She was part of our church, Olga. Her parents, who are elderly, stood for, I think, 17 hours. They couldn't get a spot on the floor to lie down or sit down. And everybody around them was laying in the aisles. They took a picture of it, and she posted it on Facebook. 17 hours to get to a western city where they could cross over the border. I don't know where Olga is. Has she gone? Has she gotten out, Rosie? She's still in Kiev. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, this is just amazing, people. And, and see, this is where our bowels of compassion need to be shown. This is where that heart that reaches out and says, Lord, what can I do to help? And then do something, right? It's not just enough to feel. 
You actually have to go and do it. And that's what James says. The regenerate heart will go and do it. They will be doing stuff. (laughs) That's my paraphrase, doing stuff. Genuine faith will meet the needs of others as best they can. That is an evidence of saving faith. So today we have social media and TV that bombards us with the needs of people all over the world, so much so that we can become overwhelmed and become hardened in our hearts. Be careful watching too much stuff on TV. Because it just, it, it just eats you out from the inside. I mean, you can't... Your compassion begins to cool off because it becomes commonplace. And it's not us. We're not facing that. Be careful, please. In verse 17, James kind of wraps up this little section, and he says, Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Today we're seeing a modern-day example of James' words in real time. And I'm certain that there are many in the Ukraine that are intent on saving their own lives, that are intensely pursuing ways to make it to the western border and cross over to safety. But there are others, and we know of them, don't we? Those who had the love of God shed abroad in their hearts, and they're doing everything within their limited power to help those in need all around them, first and foremost by sharing the gospel with them, preaching the gospel with them, that if a missile hits their building, they would have eternal life, right? Our friends, the Whites and the Alverds, intentionally chose to stay in Kiev to help their brothers and sisters in need. And they could have easily fled to Poland. They're Americans, come on. They got the connections, they got the money. But they stayed there. That's a work that's from a regenerate heart. They instead chose to stay and to help the ones that are in need, and they're allowing their faith to shine out like a searchlight in the darkest hour. And their faith is not useless. It's not by itself, is it? Because it's adorned with those good works. And do you know what that's doing to the believers that they minister to? It's making them stand up proud and say, this is real. This is real. God is real. He is working through us. And they're standing with us. So they encourage the believers. But how about all those neighbors in those seminaries and churches that were kind of looking askance at those Christians, maybe they're uh, Russian Orthodox, possibly, or whatever. They're seeing these missionaries stay there with the people that they serve. That's drawing them to Christ because they see the reality of a faith that works. It's not a mere vocalization of facts that they believe. Rather, it's accompanied by good works commiserate with their faith. And their works are not being done to gain salvation, but as a fruit of their salvation, their gratitude to God. It's what God has produced in them, and they are filled with gratitude and love and thankfulness for the wonderful work of God in their lives. Now, are there ways that you can show forth the fruit of your salvation? Because that's what we've been talking about. What, What are the works that you could be doing, right? Well, obviously, I mentioned praying for those in the Ukraine, even those that you don't know. The Spirit of God will take those prayers and and interpret them the way they need to be interpreted. 
But, um, and giving is another way financially towards that. But you know what? Let's, let's back off away from Ukraine for a little bit. What about right here amongst us? I mean, there are needy people amongst us in our church. There are needy people in your own neighborhood, in your own circle of friends, in your family, your extended family. See, that, those good works can flow out to you from you to them being works that are commensurate with your testimony that you're a Christian. Expecting nothing in return, but giving of yourself to them to meet their need, to alleviate that need. We can do that. And that is a faith that works. That is a faith that is not alone, as James says in verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. My friends, we need to be exercising our faith now in this day of ease so that when the days become evil, our muscles of faith will be strong, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I love this passage in Jeremiah chapter 12. Listen to it and think of ourselves, okay? If you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? It's a call to function when we're not called upon to function. It's a call to reach out beyond yourself to serve others right here around us, but further too, if the way is clear to do that. It's a call to do something now in the day of peace so that when it really gets tough, you're practiced in that. You're already doing it. It's not going to be much for you to give up worldly goods and possessions. It's not going to be hard for God to pry our hands off those things that we possess that we might bless others.